Good morning. Uh, glad that you're here. If I haven't met you, my name is Joe Johnson. I am, um, I'm not a pastor here, but I'm a pastor that goes here. I'm the campus minister with RUF at Birmingham Southern. And my wife and family and I go to this church. I love this church. Love you. And uh, I love getting to do this um, every now and then. In this interim period, without a senior pastor, I get to preach every now and then. And I'm really grateful to do that, especially here in a place um, that we love. Uh, we are interrupting a series a little bit. Um, no, we're really interrupting a series. We were in Malachi, and, um, and we're going to interrupt that for one Sunday to look together at Psalm 8. Uh, at the beginning of the year, if you were here, the first Sunday of the year, we looked together at Psalm 1 and, um, and started the year that way. And I thought, the next time I get to preach with an open Sunday, I might as well just keep going. And so we're going to look at another psalm together, a shorter psalm with only nine verses, uh, Psalm 8. And the psalms are the hymn book of God's people that God's people have been singing for a very long time. But they're not our songs that we wrote down because we thought they were pretty good and we should keep them. They're actually God's songs that he gave to us to sing. The prayers that he wants us to pray, the thoughts that he wants us to think, because the Psalms really are God's way of giving us words to articulate the deepest longings of our souls and to put to words the emotions that all of us feel in the whole range of the human life, the whole range of human emotions. They tell us what we are feeling and even the emotions that we really can't even understand. So the Psalms are a grace to us given by him. And so it's interesting to ask the question as we look at one, what does God want his people to sing about? And what does he want us to pray about? What are the words that he wants on our lips? And this morning in particular, Psalm 8, we're going to sing about our significance in light of who God is. Singing about our significance, why we matter in light of who God is. And so with all that in mind, let's look together. It's on page 10 of your bulletin. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we uh, ask... As we are your people and approach your book, uh, that you reveal yourself to us more. And that in this time, we may be able, Jesus, to see you more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, All of us are looking for significance and meaning and purpose. That's a good thing. It's what we were made to do. But all of us struggle with an intense feeling of insignificance in life. And I think that starts at like a pretty early age. If you think about kind of grade school, elementary school, middle school, high school, you try so hard to attribute your identity and your sort of self-worth in something that you do, whether it's sort of sports or popularity or whatever else, like continues on. If you can remember the end of high school, the thing that you desperately wanted to put your significance in is where you're going to go to college the next year, right? You get the ACT scores or SAT scores so that you can finally tell people where you're going. I'm going to Auburn. I'm going to Alabama. 
Or if you're really brilliant, the University of South Carolina. (laughs) So you can tell people, this is what I've achieved. This is my worth. This is my significance. I'm going to be a student in this place. And uh, that rids you of any insecurities for as long as you have to wait to then go to that school. And then you're flooded with all sorts of new insecurities and shame and inadequacies and feeling insignificant on a college campus. So then you look for other places to put your self-worth, other places to find significance. And for the clubs that you belong to, the people that you hang out with, the GPA, and then all of a sudden it comes back around again, right? Because then you have to answer the question, what are you going to do after college? This is the worst time to ask a college senior what they're going to do after college, right? We're in March now, and if they don't know, they're just going to start crying when you ask them that question. Because they desperately want to give you an answer. I'm going to medical school at UAB. I'm going to be an accountant at this firm. I'm going to do this next year. Because in some way, that gives them some form of significance and worth. This is what I'm going to do. And then all of us who are now past college know this. That as soon as you start your first job, you are flooded with a whole other set of insecurities and shame. Inadequacies and feeling insignificant in what you do. And it continues on and on and on. The struggle to find significance and worth. But actually, we continually are met with a feeling of insignificance. Um, In your worship folder, the reflection quote from the day is from a guy named James K.A. Smith, who is a Christian philosopher. He's at Calvin College in Michigan. And his most recent book is called On the Road with St. Augustine. And he actually came and talked to the RUF campus ministers in December, and it was amazing. And in this book, where he kind of gives life lessons, spiritual lessons from this church father, um, he writes this. But what happens when their attention turns away as fleeting as it is? What happens after you get the grass garland, the medal, the scholarship, the promotion? How many likes is enough? How many followers will make you feel valued? What if you're not wired to be liked, but to be loved? And not by many, but by one. Could that explain why all the attention is never enough or why a kind of postpartum depression sets in after every win, every time you make it to the top of what you thought was the mountain of achievement? Why does winning leave you feeling so restless? What if you're wired not to be liked but to be loved, but not by the many, but by the one? I think that's what Psalm 8 is going to tell us this morning. Because there's really two wrong ways to find significance in this world that we all do. The first wrong way is to look externally. What does the world say about me? What can I achieve for myself and make for myself out there to say this is why I'm worth something? But as James Smith says, that will never be enough. There will not be enough mountains to climb. There will not be enough scholarships to get or achievements to get. You will always feel inadequate in that. So the world may say, don't look externally. Now look internally. To say that you are enough, to have enough self-confidence, that enough self-love, that that you are good because because you're comfortable with yourself. But any of us who've thought about ourselves any amount of time know that our hearts are sinful. And there's shame that we don't know what to do with. And that really isn't enough. Significance can't be conjured up. So now what do we do? And I think Psalm 8 is going to suggest this. That significance is not something earned. And it's not something conjured up within yourself What if significance is given? What if it's bestowed by the one who has the authority to give it and the one who loves you perfectly? So here it is, the sermon in a nutshell. You ready? You matter because God matters and he loves you. That's what Psalm 8 tells us. 
So, as we walk through this together, two things. Why do you matter? Why are you significant? Two reasons. Because who you belong to, and because what he's given you. Who you belong to, and what he's given you. So first, you matter. Our significance is, is rooted in who we belong to. So this psalm begins and ends the same way. If you notice, it's an inclusio and in kind of Bible nerd uh, kingdom. Like, this is what the psalm is about. It begins and ends the same way. It tells us what it's all about. And what is it about? It's about God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm of praise, shouting out to God. But not just any God, not some distant deity, but the psalmist cries out to, O Lord, our Lord, invoking the covenant name of God. This is the God who's attached himself to us, who's hitched his wagon to his people to say, I'm your God and you're my people forever and ever and ever. We have this covenant God who will remain with us, remain our God, and we... His people. And so he begins to tell us a little bit about what this God is like. He says, How majestic is your name upon all the earth, that this is the name to be praised, that every tongue should confess this name, that our souls yearn to know this God and to shout his name and to praise his name, which is why we're here this morning. Then he says, This You have set your glory above the heavens, which technically doesn't make any sense. This is sort of a superlative of superlatives, right? You're higher than high, you're greater than great, you're more glorious than glory itself, you're lovelier than loveliness itself. The psalmist here is putting his head in the heavens in awe of who God is and his glory and his majesty, his dominion and his power. That This God is unlike us, incomprehensible, amazing. But here's why I love Psalm 8. It's because he doesn't stay there. But he goes to where the rubber meets the road to say, how does this great God relate to his people? And this is the picture that he gives us. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You would expect him to say something different here. Like, by the strength of your hand, you will conquer your enemies. And by the word of your power, you'll silence the avenger. But it's not what he says. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, Is there anything more vulnerable and weak than what comes out of the mouth of a baby or an infant? And yet, is this picture of weakness and dependency that God points to? I use my kids as illustrations a lot, but God did it here, so I'm going to go with it. With our kids, we have an 11-month-old who either will wake up in the middle of the night and sleep late, or he will sleep through the night and wake up at like 5 a.m. ready to go. So those are our choices every day. And so the way April and I, my wife and I, have figured out how to deal with this without you know, one person just never getting sleep or us getting mad at each other to figure out who has to get the baby, we've sort of uh, developed shifts that if it's in the middle of the night that he wakes up, he's April's problem. If he wakes up really early in the morning, it's my problem. So we have a set time. So we, just, we wake up when we hear him, we look at our phone, and we know exactly who needs to you know, deal with this problem. Um, and so I've trained myself to sleep through the night no matter what happens. Um, and so April, uh, when she hears the baby, she immediately gets up because she knows it's her shift. And she's more able to sort of get up, do that, and go back to bed. But it's that picture that's kind of amazing that my son wakes up and he starts crying like any baby does. But he's in a dark room and, it, and there's nothing strong or admirable about what he's doing. He's really just kind of shouting his weakness and dependency in the darkness. 
He's not pulling himself up by his bootstraps. He really is leaning into that need, leaning into that dependence. And in that weakness is met by the strength of my wife. Who comes into the room to pick him up, to care for him, to love him, to, to clean him, to feed him. And to be able to, to, to comfort him to the point that he's able to go back to sleep. It's that utter weakness met with an unbelievable strength. And a very tender picture that God points to and says, this is how I relate to my people. That in their weakness, in their dependency, in their need, they will feel my strength the most. Now this is... This is completely opposite from what the world tells us. And the pressures that we feel, right? What are you supposed to do with your weakness and need? You're supposed to hide it. You're supposed to put your best face forward. But here God is saying, no, in those places, in those rough edges, in that darkness and in that shame in your heart, that's where you'll feel me the most. And in the weakness of my people, I will conquer enemies. Now, what does this have anything to do with our significance? It's in the question, how does my son know that he matters? Like, how does he know that he is loved and he's important? It's when when he calls for his mom and she comes. And in that moment, he is aware that he's cared for and he's loved and he's known. He's important. When in your life do you feel the most insignificant? And I have to believe it's when you're going through something... And there is a belief that no one cares and no one knows. That you kill yourself in your job to support yourself or your family, but does anyone really care what you do? Or you have to stay home all day with kids and you haven't talked to an adult for like 48 hours. And you're changing diaper number 12. Does anyone actually care? The kids don't even care what I'm doing. Does anyone actually care and see me? Or maybe you're going through a dark season right now that you don't even really know how to verbalize to another person. Does anyone see me? Does anyone care? Listen to what the psalmist says next. And I want this to sort of wash over us. Because in talking about this God that works in the weakness of His people, here's what he says, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You see what he's doing? He's he's putting his head back up in the heavens and saying, this is the God that created the whole world, that set the world in motion by the word of his power and holds it all in his hands, this world that we do not understand, that we can study for our entire lives, generation after generation, and we'll never have the fullness of knowledge to understand this place that he made out of nothing. And on top of that, he knit you together in your mother's womb, and he knows you better than you know yourself. And that God, that mighty, powerful God that holds the world in his hands, is mindful of you. Do you know what that literally means? It means that God thinks about you. That he has a mind full of thoughts about his people. And that he cares for you. Does anyone see you in your depression? Yes, God sees you. He thinks of you. Does anyone see me when I think no one cares about what I'm doing? Yes, God sees you and he cares for you. Here is our significance. That you matter a great deal to the God of the universe. And that he cares about your well-being. And cares about your heart. And thinks good thoughts about you. Isn't that amazing? 
All of us belong to something. All of us are, are, are rooting our significance in something. The only question is, what is it? Do we really belong to our careers? Is that really where we're going to find ourselves? That can never be enough. You were made for more than that. Is it really in our sexuality? You were made for more than that. In other people's opinion? What if your significance and glory and worth is all wrapped up in who God is? And what he thinks about you? He's mindful and cares for his people. Where do you find your significance? If not in who you belong to. But not only that, second point this morning. He also gives us something. It's not just who we belong to, but also what he's given. So verse 5 to verse 8 really tells us about what God has given his people. And it's a lot. Starting in verse 5, let me read. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This language is almost identical to Genesis chapter 1. And so this is hearkening back to what did God give to his people when he made us? And it's at least three things. And the first thing he says he's given us is life itself. Verse 5, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds on this one because if your Bible, if you have your Bibles out, um, your, your Bible probably has a footnote next to that heavenly beings. Or your translation may say angelic beings or angels. And I'm not a Hebrew expert, so I'm not going to pretend like I know more than the translators. But, but those are not exactly what the word's getting at. Because the Hebrew word here for heavenly beings is the word Elohim. There's a famous Hebrew word. It, it means God. Now, it doesn't mean Yahweh, like the God of the Bible, but Elohim is a way to reference God, and it's kind of a lower G God. And so what this is saying here is that God made man and woman a little lower than God. Meaning there is a distinction, obviously. Creator, creation. But he made us as his crowning jewel of creation. Then in a way, we are like him in the way that nothing else in creation can say. And secondly, what he gives us is glory and honor. Meaning that that glory, that God-likeness he has given to us, that in ways and attributes we are like him and are made to mirror his glory in this world, an honor that's bestowed upon nothing else in creation except for us. And then the third thing that he gives man and woman is dominion. Now again, this is the exact language of Genesis chapter 1. And Adam and Eve, they were made and they were given dominion over this world. They were told to cultivate this world into something, to garden, but also to make something of the blank canvas of creation that God has given them. To fill it with love, to fill it with family, to fill it with art, to fill it with culture. Right? That's what God gave to his people. In other words, all three of those things say that God gave a dignity to his people. Which means that whether you're a Christian or not, you were made in the image of God and do respect and do love and do life. We are his crowning jewel of creation. But here's why I need to stop for a second. Because as you hear all of that, if you are anything like me, you have questions. <laughs> do you feel this in your life? Do you feel like you've been made a little lower than God? Do you feel glory and honor all the time? Do you feel dominion? That's the one that I think gets me. I don't feel like I have dominion over anything in my life. 
I can't control the phone calls that I get. I can't control the mistakes that I make. I can't control the failures that I've experienced. I can't control, I feel like I'm being dominated by the world, not in dominion over the world. And the thing we have to get from Psalm 8 is that this is not, to some extent, our reality today. This is talking about the way we were made to be. And this is talking about what we've lost in the fall, to some degree. Still made with glory and honor, still made in the image of God. But if you read through this, you actually see we've exchanged our life for the sin and death of this world. And that we've exchanged the glory and honor given by God for the glory and honor of the opinion of man. And we've exchanged dominion over this world to being dominated by this world and being dominated by sin and dominated by death. But here's the hope of Psalm 8. And this is incredible. This psalm is quoted four times in the New Testament, which is a lot. And we actually read one of them earlier in Hebrews 2. And you know, in all four of those instances that Psalm 8 is quoted, do you know who the New Testament writers think this is about? Not us. They say this is about Jesus. The ultimate man who came to live the life that we were made to live, that we were made for. That he's the one who, for a moment, was made a little lower. God became man and entered into his own creation. That it's him that receives all glory and honor and all authority in heaven and earth. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And he has dominion over all things. That all things are at his feet and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to King Jesus. He is the one who will come and live the life that we were made to live in order to clothe us with the righteousness that is not our own to remind us of who we were made to be. What is the greatest gift God has given His people? It's not even the life that He gave us. It's not glory and honor and it's not dominion. The greatest gift that God has given His people is Himself. Because it's He who will come and rescue His people. He will do it. Not some other Messiah. God came and did it Himself to bring you home. Uh, Dorothy Sayers um, was a writer. She did a lot of things, but she was, um, uh, wrote a lot of um, mystery novels. Not like junky mystery novels, which I actually read. But not, so less like James Patterson, but, but more like Sherlock Holmes. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Brilliant. And um, in her mystery novel, crime novels, her Sherlock Holmes uh, was a man named Peter Wimsley. And uh, Peter Wimsley, a lot like Sherlock Holmes, is utterly brilliant, solves these crimes that are really fun to follow, um, but also very, very broken, kind of a mess of a life. And so she has a lot of these kind of stories that you can follow along. And, and one of the stories a reoccurring character enters in, and her name is Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane um, ends up falling in love with Peter Wimsley. They get married. And in that marriage, in that relationship, um, she brings redemption to his life. She like rescues him from himself. But here's the thing about Harriet Vane that you immediately notice. She's the same age as Dorothy Sayers when she wrote it. She went to Oxford. And she's a crime mystery novelist. And so anyone with a pulse who has read Dorothy Sayers says, oh, she wrote herself into the story. And I'm not like a creative person, I'm not a writer, but I, I love this idea that, that 
Dorothy Sayers, in her brilliance that I cannot comprehend, made this world. And, and in this world, this universe that she created, she, she developed these characters that she absolutely loved. And in the course of the narrative of this story, it's like she could not help but enter it herself. To rescue the crowning jewel of her creation. And to redeem him and to love him. Like, God enters into his own story. In order to rescue the crowning jewel of his creation, to make them the crowning jewel of his redemption. It's like he could not help but come do it himself. To bear our sins at great cost, in order to make us new, and to dwell with us forever, and to remind us of the family that we're in. I don't think this is pushing it that far, but this too far, but do you know what, like, we talk about heaven in the church a lot, and we talk about what we look forward to in heaven. Do you know what Jesus looks forward to in heaven? Do you know what he's pumped about? He's pumped about being in glory with his bride. Like, he's excited about you in heaven. Like, you are his pearl of great price that he's willing to give up everything to get. You are his treasure buried in a field that he's willing to give up everything to buy the field to gain for himself. You are his treasure that he looks so forward to in heaven. So what does this have to do with significance again? It means this. If the God of the universe was willing to come get you himself and to make you clean, why would you ever try to find significance in anything in this world? And if we rest in that love, all of a sudden you experience a freedom that maybe you've never tasted before. That if you really lean into what God thinks of you, all of a sudden you're free to give yourself and love others expecting nothing in return. You're all of a sudden free to go to work, not to find your significance and worth, but you're free because Jesus already thinks so much of you. That you're now free and go and glorify his name throughout the world. You don't need your job to tell you who you are. You don't need others to tell you who you are. Jesus already has. You are his crowning jewel. Psalm 8 reminds us who we are. It doesn't tell us that we're great in and of ourselves. Psalm 8 tells us we're great because God's great. And his redemption is to make us great again. By forgiving us our sins and making us new. Psalm 8 tells us who we were made to be. And that is our significance. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 8. And we thank you, Lord, that you are mindful of us. That in the deepest parts of our hearts, we begin to believe that we don't matter and that no one cares. And on our darkest days, Jesus, you see us. And in our struggle to fight sin, when we feel like we should give up, Jesus, you see us and you're excited. And in the days where we do nothing but change diapers and do meaningless tasks, we feel, Jesus, you are mindful of us and you're excited about what you're doing in our hearts. I pray, Lord, as we go out into this world that we find our true significance in you. And see that you love us perfectly. And now there go for now therefore go and love others with that same love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.